0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in this episode, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Stephen Kelly of Manufacturing Northern Ireland about the huge surge in north-south border trade since Brexit began at the start of this year. With political tensions rising over the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, Stephen Kelly outlines the changes that his members would like to see implemented while Cliff Taylor gives us his view on the talks between the UK and the European Union to resolve this thorny issue. But first, we're going to look at Fine Gael's ambitious spending plans for the Irish economy, outlined last week by Tadhg de at the party's Ardesh. I'm joined for the segment by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Sebastian Barnes, chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which has butted heads with the Taunista in the past few days over its analysis of government budgetary policy. I'll be asking him about that row later. But I began by asking Cliff Taylor about the spending promises outlined last week by Leavrekher. Cliff, can I just ask you, Leo Varadkar was speaking to the Fine Gael Ardèche, um there last week and he set out a vision for the future of Ireland as he sees it. he was talking about the need to build 40,000 new homes each year, that the billions in extra health spending that we've seen during COVID, that that should continue to be baked into the numbers and that there should be better pay in terms and conditions for private and public sector workers um, and that we should retain the pandemic financial supports for as long as necessary. But all of this comes against a backdrop of likely... Declining corporation tax revenues due to the global deal um, that would set a minimum rate of 15% of multinational profits. You've been writing about that a lot recently. And a pledge from the government parties, if you like, uh, not to increase personal taxes. So how do we
1: square that circle? Good question, Kieran. Um And, you know, you might, you might think that um, the speech was almost like something that would be made in a general election campaign, and of course we do have a by-election campaign going on at the moment uh, and you would wonder if that is having some impact on uh, the political statements we're seeing at the moment. But you're right, uh, the Taunista did commit to huge amounts of extra spending uh, on housing, uh, on health uh, and in other areas. And really what the government parties have been saying when they're challenged on this is, oh, growth will take care of it. That the economy is going to bounce back after covid Tax receipts are going to rocket. Spending is going to fall, and everything will be hunky dory. And if you look at um, the stability program update that the Department of Finance sent to Brussels um, a few months ago, it did indeed say uh, that borrowing would fall to below three percent of GDP next year, and, and would gradually fizzle out then over the next few years. But the problem is that uh, its forecasts were based on, uh, on on current policies, if you like. Uh, and there's no uh, allowance in there for for, for new policies. There's so no, no allowance for all these extra spending commitments that are coming in. Uh, there is some allowance made in the figures for falling corporate tax rates all right. But the, the big issue is how are all these additional commitments going to be going to be met? And, you know, bodies such as the Fiscal Advisory Council have, have also been pointing to longer term pressures in areas like the ageing population and the massive amounts we're going to have to spend on, uh, on on the environmental agenda. So a really big issue there. And I think signs of some tension in government uh, between uh, most of the cabinet on one side and uh, Department of Finance and public spending, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath on the other side. And uh, Tishok uh, Michal Martin said this week in the Dail that uh, McGrath and ministers McGrath and who had given quotes a sober assessment uh, to the rest of the cabinet earlier this week on the outlook for the public finances. So it's clear, I think, that uh, the ministers are trying to put the frighteners on their colleagues. You know that you really need to get real here. Uh, that we can't just keep making spending commitments and and you know, with, without looking at how they how they might be funded. And I think where this is going to come to a head. Uh, in the short term anyway, is the Summer Economic Statement, which is promised um, late this month or early next month, and in which Pascal Dunne, who told uh, the Dáil last week he intended to outline some kind of policy for the public finances, what he called an anchor for the public finances, in other words, some kind of target, perhaps for spending, debt, the deficit, which is going to put put a limit on things over the next few years. It'll be very interesting to see how he does that, and what the rest of his cabinet colleagues are prepared to sign up to. If you look at the UK, Boris has some big spending plans that he'd like to push through. He
0: likes to go big on things. and um, But, you know, the, the narrative is that Rishi Sunak uh, is, is much more sober in his assessment of this. And he's trying to rein in some of those uh, spending promises uh, and is possibly looking at tax increases. Do we
1: know where Pascal
0: stands? Is he on the same page as Leo Rocker, do you think?
1: We don't know for sure, but I doubt it. Um, I would suspect, uh, I would guess, that he's a little uncomfortable uh, with this. Um, I think, I mean, I suppose we do need to remember that we are in an unprecedented situation where spending has had to rocket uh, as, you know, cash from the government has made up from the cash being withdrawn from the private sector to kind of rescue the economy, to bail the, com- the, the economy out over the last couple of years. And that's been essential. It's been very important. And it has, to an extent, been, been successful in terms of protecting many businesses and many jobs. But it's been clear from the start, I think, that withdrawing that money uh, and kind of nuancing those uh, supports to actually help companies to, to survive is going to be a much more difficult task uh, than, than than putting it in politically. So we face a you know a very difficult job, I think, of running down the pandemic supports over the next couple of years and seeing where the public finances land. Now, there is no doubt that a takeoff in growth, uh, as most people are are forecasting, is going to is going to limit the damage and, and is going to pay for pay for a lot of this. And I think the way you could look at it is that we might hope that. Um, Economic growth is going to help us to carry the higher debt levels that we've we've built up during the pandemic. So the national debt going from two hundred billion to the guts of two hundred and fifty billion after the pandemic. So we could hope to carry that debt forward, and we could hope that interest rates are going to remain low uh, to allow that to happen. But there's a lot of extra spending commitments as well, and I don't think it's realistic to, to you know to think that we can keep borrowing more and more to pay for extra spending here, there, and everywhere. Uh, without standing back and saying, look, what's that going to mean to borrowing? What's that going to mean for debt? What's that going to mean for our ability to respond if another downturn hits? So I think very difficult decisions facing the government over the next couple of years. Crunch mightn't quite come yet, uh, but I think by the time they get to the October budget, um, you know, the writing is going to be on the wall in terms of some of the decisions they're going to have to make. Sebastian Barnes, what's the
0: Fiscal Advisory Council's view on uh, Leo Varadkar's speech and his uh, spending promises, uh, you know, against the backdrop, uh, obviously, where we're where we're going to record a, a very substantial deficit this year because of COVID, um, and there are issues around corporation tax revenues going forward, um, and and the fact that you know none of the government parties really want to increase income taxes.
2: So I think Cliff's put it very well there that even with a strong recovery and low interest rates, I uh, think it's going to get much better. But we do start from a very big deficit. So we start from an eight percent deficit. Now our assessment is once you factor in those different things that the reduction in corporate corporation tax revenue, the growth, you factor in the cost of delivering public current public services by twenty twenty five, you'd probably be somewhere around maybe a small deficit or somewhere around balance, and that's really where we need to get to. To to get debt down from these very high levels that we have now. So debt will still be over 100% of national income at that point. So so what that means in kind of concrete terms, uh, and Cliff says very clearly, is that basically there's no space factored into the budget for any additional measures beyond what's already there. So that basically means any additional measures, so that means more on the housing side or the health side, uh, all of that would have to be paid for somehow. Um, Basically, it would have to be paid through higher taxes, through maybe trying to find some spending elsewhere, but it shouldn't really be paid out of borrowing because debt is still going to be very high at that point and we need to get it back to to safer levels. So there's really no space.
0: What's your view on the pandemic financial supports that are in place? How much longer should we continue to, to keep them in place? Or how much longer can we afford to
2: keep them in place? So the affordability, I think, is maybe less of an issue than people have sometimes said. It's obviously isn't a lot of money and it needs to be well spent. But with the current uh, with the current low debt and the fact that this money was really needed to save the economy, um, I think we've actually been relatively relaxed and supportive about that. Uh, but of course, it does need to be wound down um, and that will obviously happen as as the economy recovers. We expect quite a strong recovery this year. Um, so hopefully it could be wound down fairly quickly. It may be that there are some sectors where where the problems are a bit longer lasting, which do need a bit more support perhaps into next year. Obviously, it depends what happens on the health side. But I think that it's really just a question of how the economy responds and making sure the government supports follow that. And one thing we do see a little bit is the risk that some temporary measures become permanent. So there was a little bit of discussion of that over the weekend, whether some of the health spending that was done temporarily for COVID should be locked in. You can see in other areas there might be pressures for those to continue. And that would obviously be a different thing the temporary measures that we've seen so far.
0: So how do we pay for it? Uh, this extra spending that uh, Fine Gael are talking about? Um, you said that we would need to raise uh, additional taxes. Uh, how do we go about that? If income taxes aren't going to increase, how do you, okay, they've announced some uh, increases in property tax, but um, you know, how do you generate uh, extra tax revenues without hitting income tax to pay for all
2: this? So I think the government's made it very difficult for itself because in the programme for government, it basically took half of spending off the table and said it wasn't going to cut that. And then it took a third of taxes, including it, including the income taxes, off the table as well. Uh, they talked a little bit about PSRI, but that's only like... 13% of the total or something, it's not huge. And even if you look at the kind of, you know, if you have a 1% increase in those taxes, it brings in something like 600, 700 million. It's not a huge amount of money in the scheme of things. So so, so I think it's going to be difficult. Um, and the, I think having the tax commission is a good idea as well. That will hopefully help to, you know, develop a better analysis of maybe where the best areas are. But I think there are limits to it as well. And I think one of the big things over the next year uh, and actually, politicians need to think about this now. is going to be prioritisation. It's not going to be possible to do absolutely everything that people want on housing, health, climate. The government's really going to think about which of those things it's going to prioritise, which things it's going to do first, and how much it can do. I mean, we can improve it, any of these things, which which is a good thing. But we'll, but we obviously can't meet you know the full extent of everyone's aspirations. I think, and that's an important message.
0: The Fiscal Advisory Council and Leo Varadkar have been butting heads over the last uh, few days. I think it's fair to say, Sebastian, um, he gave a, um, he had a bit of a pop at the council, didn't he, recently? We have that clip here. Let, let's have a listen to it. I think what the Fiscal Advisory Council has often said is that we underestimate demographics uh, and the cost of that, uh, a, a growing and ageing population. And that's one of the reasons why I'm saying we, we need to be honest about the health budget staying big. It's not going to be possible to, and we shouldn't, uh, tr- try to reduce it because we have an ageing and growing population, increasing demands. Uh, and I think we should put in our projections, uh, the commitments that we've made uh, to index uh, tax bans to make sure that more people don't end up paying that higher rate. We have the fourth highest um, marginal tax rate in, in the developed world, um, and too many people pay that. So I, I think they're right on, on that point. But they're not right in everything. You know, Bear in mind, this is the same fiscal council that told us that we would, wouldn't balance the budget and we did it three times and this is the same fiscal council that told us the economy was overheating when actually we were heading into Brexit, a pandemic and a big recession. So we'll take on board their advice but they are often wrong. Often wrong Sebastian Barnes uh, is what Leo Varadkar says about the the fiscal
2: advisory council. What, What did you think when you heard that? So actually, there are some things I, I agree with him about, uh, including including aging properly in the projections, also including indexation properly. So there are some areas we, we agree with. Um, obviously, when I think the claim that we're often wrong, I think is, is, is not right. Uh, and, and we've publicly explained that, um, you know, we did talk about the risk of overheating uh, before the pandemic. Now, it didn't happen, but that's because we had a global pandemic that no one forecast. But I think that was the right assessment at the time. In terms of the budget balance, uh, not predicting that we actually, I think our forecast or our, the sort of scenarios that we made at the time uh, were actually much more realistic than the ones that the government made. And, and the reason why we ended up with a budget balance, uh, it was partly actually just because of surprises on the corporation tax side. So I think the council really stands by its its assessment. We obviously don't get absolutely uh, everything uh, right, but I think on the whole we've actually got a very good track record. And I think you no know, politician, one of the jobs of the council is is to sometimes say hard truths to politicians um, and to to the public and to say we're actually facing quite hard choices on the public finances. So we're not always going to be very popular with with, with politicians. Um, But I think the council will continue to say, um, to give our assessment in the most objective, thorough and honest way uh, that we can. Uh, And I think that's our role in the system, uh, whether other people agree with us or not.
0: Nonetheless, it's a bit unedifying, isn't it, to have this kind of uh, spat, uh, if you like, between a senior government minister and, and and the state's fiscal watchdog? I mean, I presume the Fiscal Advisory Council
2: is funded by the government, is it? Yes. So the Fiscal Advisory Council is set up by the government under under the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Uh, it's paid for by the government. Its budget is actually protected um, from day-to-day political interference. And this is probably perhaps a reminder of, of why something like that is important. And, and I don't think it's, it's it's particularly helpful for... And people can obviously disagree with the council. Um, but I don't think it's particularly helpful for people to undermine its credibility, particularly when there you know, isn't a, a good reason uh, to do that. And I think we're trying to provide a, a good service to, to the political system and to the people of Ireland in terms of having this objective assessment of the public finances. I think we've done a lot to help people's understanding uh, of the issues and the choices uh, that we face. And as I said, that won't always make us flavor of the month. We're an independent body and we will continue to speak truth unto power uh, as as best we can.
0: Do you feel that Leo Varadkar's comments undermine the credibility of the Council?
2: To be honest, I don't think so. I think the the credibility of the Council really depends on the work that we do, on the fact that we speak the truth, uh, and the fact that we do a lot of analysis. I think the quality of analysis of fiscal policy in Ireland has, has got much better. I think the debate has got much better. The fact that we're having this discussion here, and I think there's there's a wide understanding in, in the political system and in the public and amongst journalists uh, of, of the choices we face for the years ahead of the fact that government hasn't really set out a programme uh, for the medium term. There's no real medium term plan and that creates risks. And I think the fact there's an understanding of that, uh, you know, that is related to the work of the council. So I, I don't think it really undermines it. I don't think it's a big issue. And Sebastian, as chairman, I mean, do you meet the
0: politicians regularly? Do you meet the Minister for Finance, Pascal Dunou, Or have you met Leo Veradker or the Taoiseach even?
2: One of the important things of our work is our independence. Uh, and we also believe very strongly in transparency uh, and also avoiding groupthink. So we want to be a little bit outside the system. Um, and that's and so we actually don't meet with with politicians. All of our advice, we basically give in public. Uh, so you can you know, go on our website and you can see Read our reports, and that's exactly what we're saying. Uh, we also appear before the Arctus uh, Committee, and again, you can see you know that's all available publicly as well. So, uh, so we don't have these interactions because this independence is very important.
0: And on the outside looking in, Sebastian, some people might f- might wonder about um, the Fiscal Advisory Council's role because um, there have been criticisms of budgetary uh, policy by, um, by by yourself and, and by your predecessors, James Coffee, um, and. Uh, The government just seems to shrug um, and doesn't really seem to uh, engage with that advice, if you like, um, or those observations uh, in a meaningful way. So some people might ask the question about what's the point of it all?
2: I think the council does have a big impact, uh, actually. I think the council, uh, I mean, a lot of the time our views haven't been that different from the government. So, you know, whether that's because the government's been following us or not, um, I don't know. There have been a couple of occasions, actually, in in the budget two years ago where the ministers have explicitly said that they have done something differently, purely on the advice of the council. So I think, you know, there are these very concrete examples. Um, But I think, you know they have taken on board a lot of our advice often on technical things or things that maybe you know don't fit feature in everyday discussion but are actually quite important um and i think there are areas again where they haven't followed our advice uh, we're only an advisory body um you know, we try and persuade people the the public politicians uh are, of our position i think there are a lot of people who've come around to our way of thinking on a number of issues the government hasn't always done that and i guess it's up to them uh whether they you know I guess they have reasons for not doing that. But uh, I think we have delivered the right advice. And actually, I think they would do well to listen to it. I mean, particularly on this medium term planning issue, um, you know, the government is taking a big risk. It's making commitments last year in the budget. It committed to a sort of five to eight billion increase in permanent spending. which was absolutely huge. Uh, I don't think anyone would really notice that had the council not pointed that out. Um, and I, th- I think that that's a mistake. That was something. And we said that wasn't appropriate. That's some, that one of the reasons why things are so tight in the years ahead is, is that usually growth does pay for quite a lot of increase in public spending. But here it's all it was actually all spent last year. And so we've got a few years where we just have to wait until until the kind of economy catches up. Um, and so I think the council's advice does does have ha, have an influence. Uh, uh, as I said, it, it's not perfect. And I guess the government should be held to account. if People don't like uh, what it's done and it's against the council's advice.
1: Cliff Taylor, were you surprised by Leo Veracker's comments? A little. Uh, a little, on, I suppose, all right. Uh, but he does tend to be pointed in his comments. And to be honest with you, uh, it's probably a good thing if the Fiscal Council is getting under the skin of politicians a bit, uh, because I think that's what it's paid to do. Uh, you know, it's paid to kind of speak out, uh, to kind of irritate politicians a bit, to point out things that they probably don't want to be pointed out. And I think, you know, Sebastian's right that it has had a, the Council has had a significant impact on the debate here in recent years. And Probably on the course of fiscal policy in terms of what was done before the pandemic, um, which you know credit to the government and credit to the council, I think has has left us in a reasonable position uh coming into the pandemic but the key point I think that it's making now is correct that we we just feel a bit the whole thing just feels a bit loose and untethered at the moment. uh we've no kind of framework uh looking at over the next few years. Uh in the stability programme update, the government, you know, just basically said, Well, if we don't do anything else, here's the way the finances might pan out. But that's not realistic. You know, what we need to start moving towards is what uh, what 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 is planned to be done? How's it going to be paid for? What's that going to mean for the public finances and the national debt? Some kind of framework for decisions. And if you don't have a framework, then you're just kind of politicians coming out and promising to increase spending and cut taxes. Uh because there's no there's no way to kind of call it to account. There's no way to say, look, what will that mean for for borrowing next year or the deficit the year after or or, or whatever? So I think it is important that that is is developed. And I think there's, a, as I said at the start, I think there's a bit of a struggle going on in the government at the moment about that. Uh, Politically, there's a huge push to spend more. Uh, Politically, the government is seeing, you know, rising support for Sinn Féin, which is in turn supporting increased spending in a whole lot of different areas. And I guess that is the... um, that is the trend worldwide to some extent as well, uh, but big questions about you know, what that means for the public finances over the next few years. We are we are so lucky that interest rates remain on the floor and, and are and, you know are on the floor and are likely to remain there and and it will hopefully give us the flexibility to get out of this um, in reasonable shape. And I, I guess the good news from the council's analysis over over the last year or so is that we can get out of this without a return to the kind of austerity we saw after the last crisis. We may need to trim our sails, we may need to raise more money, but that's not the same as austerity. Austerity is cutting back in the face of a recession and uh, we should hopefully be able to avoid that this time around. Okay,
0: let's hope so. We'll leave it there. Sebastian
1: Barnes of the Fiscal Advisory Council, thank you for joining us.
0: Now I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Stephen Kelly, Chief Executive of Manufacturing Northern Ireland. Cliff, you might start with you. We had data from the CSO last week showing that there had been a major upturn in the level of cross-border trade in the first four months of this year, and um, suggests that more and more companies are using the border to bypass customs checks post Brexit. The value of goods import from the North rose by sixty percent to just over a billion euro in the period while the value of exports from the Republic to the North rose by 40% to just under 1 billion euro. So, wondering if you can interpret that uh, for us and tell us why we're seeing such big uplifts in uh, trade north and south.
1: Yeah, early days yet, I suppose, after the UK uh, actually left the customs union and single market and Brexit economically happened. But I guess what we've seen is a a pretty uh, extraordinary uh, economic adjustment in the meantime, as you said. The latest figure showing imports up uh, 60% from Northern Ireland, and exports to Northern Ireland up 40% and also a big fall off in Irish imports from the UK. So as you say, there's, there's obviously a bit of diversion in trade going on. The CSO have guided that some British companies are using Northern Ireland to bring goods from Britain to the Republic through the North, as they find that easier now with the new customs rules. So there's a lot of settling down to do. There was also a lot of stockpiling before the end of last year by companies because they were afraid about how the new new rules would operate. Companies are also getting used to the, the rules in terms of importing from the UK into the Republic, and also uh, from from Britain into the North. So there's a lot of different parts and a lot of settling down going on. But I think. There's enough to say that, that there's clear evidence that trade patterns are changing. And I mean, one thing uh, looking at the Republic, for example, is the extraordinary change in freight movements uh, with, with a load of new uh, direct boat routes from uh, from Ireland to continental Europe and much a much smaller amount of goods using the land bridge. Still a very significant amount, but much less that would have been the case in the past. So a very sharp initial adjustment. Still, I think a lot of noise in the data and, and we'll have to see how it settles down, but it does seem to have given a boost to uh, north-south trade. It does seem to have hit trade between, uh, between Ireland and Britain. We, we don't have any uh, data on trade between uh, Great Britain and the north. That's only published, uh, I think, once a year. But obviously, we, we know there have been some uh, some problems and some difficulties there, particularly in relation to uh, the importation of food and agricultural products from Britain into the north, and also more generally as well.
0: Stephen Kelly, I think you've about your organisation has about 5,500 members in the north. What are they seeing on the ground? What are they telling you?
3: Well, clearly, uh, one of the outcomes of Brexit and the protocol was that Northern Irish goods can continue to freely circulate to the EU. And in general, uh, our members are reporting that that that's working well. Uh, there are issues, there are concerns, there are blips in, in certain member states. Uh, there are frictions appearing as as other member states and their agencies don't differentiate between. Uh, the UK and Northern Ireland, so they, they don't recognize that our goods can freely circulate. But that's not the case on the island of Ireland. Uh, what manufacturers are saying is that uh, more than half have seen no impact whatsoever uh, from the 1st of January this year, and about 10% are reporting that there's a quite a significant uptick uh, in terms of their trade on the island of Ireland. So uh, the, the one half of the, the Brexit the EU half, in terms of ensuring goods can freely circulate, seems to be working reasonably well.
0: Okay, and what are the reasons for such large increases, in your opinion? I mean, 60% in terms of uh, goods coming from the north-south uh, and 40% in terms of from the Republic to the north. Are huge numbers.
3: They are, and I mean, I'm I'm no trade expert, but what I can say is that business will always find the, the easiest route. In many ways, I suppose trade is like water. It will flow and find where the barriers are and try to divert themselves around those. And and clearly there's a full third country international border between uh, Britain and Ireland. Uh, Dublin port is uh, the equivalent of Calais or Rotterdam or any of these other European ports. Uh, And actually having to do a full frontier declaration from Britain into Ireland is a bit of a pain for businesses. So when when they look at ways and, and easier routes for that trade to flow and they, they don't need to look too far where there's people just up the road that can supply them. Uh, we haven't got into the uh, huge detail into the, the numbers uh, that are reported, but my understanding is that there's a lot of stuff in and around grain, a lot of stuff in and around perhaps flour and, and those sort of issues. So those kind of staple items that Irish consumers need or farmers need. They're certainly looking north for those items because it's just too difficult to land those from Britain into Dublin port, for instance.
0: What about the, the Irish Sea border, as we know it? Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol means that goods coming in from Britain to the north have to go through customs checks now. How's that working, Stephen?
3: It's it's fair to say that it's been a difficult experience. Uh, the, the the process actually works in two stages. So Cliff referenced earlier that some Irish businesses are perhaps using northern ports to to bring goods into uh, the Republic of Ireland, uh, the way the process works is that there's a, a simplified frontier declaration uh, just to allow goods to move first, and then that's followed up by what's called a supplementary declarations, which is by 23 separate data fields, including the value, the weight, the origin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in the end, all businesses in the north will still have to complete the same full frontier declaration as businesses in the south and using uh, Dublin port, for instance, uh, would have to do. And it's clear that uh, from all the survey work that we've been doing and and even uh, talking to others in other sectors, GB businesses have been completely unprepared for what was coming on the 1st of January. And in fact, six months into this process, they remain unprepared. Now, the worry for us is that despite all the effort that we have thrown in terms of business with our suppliers, despite all the, the effort and indeed the money that the UK government has thrown at GB suppliers to Northern Ireland, That dial really hasn't moved at all this year. Uh, Half of all manufacturers are reporting that their biggest challenge remains that GB suppliers are unprepared to send stuff to Northern Ireland. But more worryingly, uh, Ciarán, is that uh, when we asked the sector back in February uh, whether their suppliers were committed to continuing to send goods to Northern Ireland, uh, that was about 15%. But that's now jumped to roughly about 20%. So one in five manufacturers are reporting that GB suppliers to their business that may have gone back for decades are now unprepared to send goods to Northern Ireland. And the reason for that is plain and simple, that the, uh, their suppliers are not willing to engage in the customs formalities that are required to send goods to Northern Ireland. They're not willing to engage because they don't have the knowledge or experience, but also the cost of this. Uh, this is adding significantly uh, to the cost of sending goods to Northern Ireland. That's reflected. Uh, in the performance and the behaviour now of GB suppliers who are just cutting Northern Ireland out of their supply chain completely.
0: How has it come to this past, Stephen? Because you know Boris Johnson uh, and the Conservatives promised a, a very simple Brexit trade deal and one that would be good for uh, the whole of the UK. So how has it come to this past that uh, manufacturers in, in the North are having these issues uh, with suppliers in GB?
3: There's a very famous video going around social media that I shared, which was Boris Johnson speaking at, a, at an event in, in Northern Ireland where uh, he promised that, if anybody was asked for any of the paper, just crumple it up and put it in the bin or to, to ring number 10 and ask for him personally. Now, we haven't had the opportunity to ring him personally yet, but uh, to be fair to the Prime Minister, what he was talking about was the unfettered access that Northern Ireland businesses will continue to have and do continue to have with the, uh, with the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, our businesses are reporting that they are sending stuff uh, with ease from Northern Ireland to GB. In fact, demand is... Uh, pretty high at the moment, and the, the challenge is getting trailers back so that we can actually send stuff back across again. There's been a flip there in terms of the amount of goods that we uh, bring into Northern Ireland. is now less than what we send from Northern Ireland to GB, uh, and that's that in itself is causing issues. I mean, the, the, the big problem for us in the middle of all of this is that the trade deal that the UK and the EU concluded is a very weak agreement. Uh, it comes with with uh, very significant problems, particularly for those that need components or ingredients or raw materials that would ordinarily be, be distributed from Great Britain. Uh, the rules of origin are next to non-existent, uh, and that's created massive issues for our manufacturers in terms of continuing their supply chains. Uh, if we were asking for one particular change to happen uh, within the uh, the TCA that the UK and the EU EU have agreed, it's actually to allow goods that are distributed from Great Britain that are EU origin. So we, we accept the fact that Chinese origin goods are, are a risk, but EU origin goods are actually arriving in Britain on their route to Northern Ireland, and we're not receiving the benefit of the TCA like other nations would have. So uh, that, that principle of goods being at risk of working their way into the EU's single market, we don't think there's any risk of EU goods, simply distributed from Britain, working their way back into the EU zone market. We don't believe that that causes any significant challenge to the uh, to the European Union single market itself. So yeah, we have issues, we have problems but we also see big opportunities here Kiron and perhaps we'll get into that later on in the, in the conversation.
0: Yeah, so just to be clear, uh, goods going from Britain to Northern Ireland, there are issues there because they have to go through various uh, customs checks, but goods going from Northern Ireland to, to Britain are basically sailing through the ports unfettered.
3: Yeah, no challenges, no issues there at all. The the only issue is uh, the availability of trailers. We're we're making so much stuff and sending so much stuff to Great Britain as their market begins to open up uh, that we, we just are struggling with the transport links rather than anything else.
0: Cliff, the Northern Ireland Protocol has become a hot political issue, hasn't it? Not just in Northern Ireland uh, among unionists, but also between the EU and the UK. It's a real
1: point of friction at the minute. Where where are we at with that? Well, I was reading the uh, the evidence to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee over the last few days, which has been discussing the protocol. Uh, and I mean, where we're at is that the EU and the UK are trying to come up with fixes and solutions to make things flow a bit easier uh but it's difficult to know uh the extent of the uk government's involvement in that if you like brandon lewis was on again today at the northern ireland affairs committee saying look the protocol as it works is 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 not sustainable you know it has to change fundamentally on the other hand there were a variety of business groups like stevens appearing before the committee talking about the kind of practical fixes that might be done in areas like as he said the rules of origin requirements which uh traders are finding kind of difficult to work and the food area where kind of an SBS uh, veterinary deal between the UK and the EU would remove the need for a lot of checks on goods moving from Britain to Northern Ireland and would make things uh, a lot easier. So I think we're we're at a difficult point where it's not clear if those kind of easing and, and, and making the deal work better are going to do it politically in the North or whether the DUP uh, and the British government to some extent are are, are going to hold out against the protocol and and lead to, you know, what could be a very difficult political situation.
0: Yeah. How has it come to this pass? I mean, it's only about six months ago that this deal was signed, seven months ago that this deal was signed. So, I mean, how how have we come to this pass so quickly? How come these things weren't
1: anticipated? Well, they were, I think. What you could say is the British government, you know, signed up to something. Uh, Did they realise what it meant? I'm sure they did. I'm sure the senior civil servants in London, you know, realised exactly what, what was meant. And I think we've seen two problems since then. One is that this deal was done at the last minute, and a lot of the I's weren't dotted and T's weren't crossed, and there was a huge lack of consultation with business about how this would work in practice. So so there's a lot of settling down to be done, and a lot of kind of nuances to be sorted out. But there is also the fundamental question and the political question that you have a border there. No matter what's done, you have some kind of border there in the Irish Sea. And I think the big political issue now going forward is whether enough enough can be done to make the Protocol works smoothly. That you know, the that the bigger political issue is solved. Uh, from what the DUP and the British government are saying at the moment, you you would think no is the answer to that. But you know, are they just position taking? Are they just putting pressure on the EU to to give a bit of the negotiations? It's it's it's, it's unclear. Uh, but but an easy solution is you know isn't isn't evident. A lot of a lot of practical things that can be done to make things easier. But the political point remains that, you know, there will be a, some kind of a trade border in the Irish Sea. And, and, and as of now, the DUP and the other unionist parties are saying that's a no-go for them.
0: Yeah, and Mia Martin calling for some flexibility um, among his fellow EU leaders.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are things that, that the EU can do. Um, as Stephen said, there's, uh, you know, a lot of debate about goods that would be, would be uh, classified as being at risk of moving into the EU single market and how they should be treated suggestions before the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee that uh, a lot more goods at the Northern Ireland port could be could be effectively green-lighted and, and not seem to be at risk and could move through quick channels without having to go through all these checks, suggestions that the bu- bureaucracy could be made a lot easier and that the rules of origin, rules could be clarified, and all those kind of things that, you know, might have been done over, over time in a normal trade deal of, over years as it was negotiated, but because this thing was, you know, pulled together at the last minute as a way forward, just weren't done. You know, so let's hope that some progress can be made and the EU will surely show some flexibility. But the clear signs also are that, you know, looking at what happened at the G7 meeting and and, and other contacts recently, that they're pretty fed up with the UK government at the moment. They don't feel they're dealing straight on this. They don't feel they're keeping to the arrangement that they signed when the deal was done. And it remains to be seen in that context what, what flexibility they will show. Stephen, on the face
0: of it, uh, manufacturers in Northern Ireland—you uh, might think they have the best of both worlds. I mean, access to the EU's uh, single market, uh, and also access to the British consumer market—it sounds like a pretty good outcome for manufacturers post Brexit.
3: Yeah, it does, care on. I mean, the uh, the reality is slightly different than uh, the painted there. Uh, I suppose I just kind of going back to to Cliff's kind of comments earlier there that. I mean, the, the reality for many businesses in the north is that uh, this is a system and a process that was introduced at pace. And you'll understand this as journalists. You can't just sit down and write your 500, 1000 words and get it right first time. Sometimes you have to go back to it and sometimes you have to edit it and change it and nuance it a little bit more. And that's exactly the same in terms of the operation of the protocol uh, in that in pa- on paper, it looks like it works fine but in practice, it comes with very significant uh, problems that some of which were quite clearly articulated by business and others since the, uh, the UK and the EU did this deal back in in 2019. Uh, but some of them are just emerging as well. Uh, and certainly in our conversations with the UK government, but also with the European Union, uh, we're identifying where those things aren't working as well as what they pre- anticipated to be. Uh, we're, we're asking them to say, listen, we've got to 80% as quickly as we possibly can. It's going to take time to get to the other 20%. That's going to need some flexibility uh, on your behalf and it's going to need some uh, workarounds on our behalf. Uh, and if we're able to do that, if we're able to resolve some of the, the problems that were uh, were not visible whenever these deals were done, then we are potentially on uh, on an opportunity here. And certainly the just the, the headline of having the best of both worlds is one which is very attractive to investors. Uh, our investment agency, Invest Northern Ireland, have had more inquiries in the first three months of this year than they had in any whole year over the last five uh, years. We've we've already talked about the uh, the increase in trade from Northern Ireland to uh, Ireland uh, since the 1st of January. Uh, and our members are, are shouting at the Northern Ireland executive. Half of them are saying, listen, grasp the opportunities that are being presented. Uh, go and find uh, the markets for us go out to the market and tell investors, actually Northern Ireland has such a unique position, you need to come and, and look at us. Uh, and and to create that kind of wealth and work that we all crave, that we know at the end will cement the peace process in itself. And I think the challenge that we have at the moment between the relationship in the between the UK and the EU is that we're speaking different languages. The EU is speaking binary, that old code of ones and zeros, uh, but the UK is speaking poetry. Uh, And stuck in the middle is business, here speaking, reality. Uh, And somewhere between all of that, hopefully they land where we are, rather than where either side are. But if we do that, I think we're we're in certainly a, a unique position that will allow Northern Ireland to prosper.
0: So if there was one thing you would say to the UK and EU and that they could do that might help um, grease the wheels in, in this situation that might make life uh, better for manufacturers in Northern Ireland? What would it be?
3: It's actually four things, Ciarán. Uh, okay. Typical okay. Northern Ireland. You offer us two and we'll take four. Uh, but for us, it, it is the need for stability. So to, to sort out and decompress some of the politics that are that are witnessing here. I know uh, you and your colleagues will know that the, the number one priority for business and investors is political stability, but we just don't have that right now. And that's the reality that we face. So we, we need some political stability, and that, that comes with actually buying some more time in terms of getting some of these systems and processes up and running and ready. The second thing is certainty. So what are the long-term solutions? And those need to be designed with business. Cliff absolutely correct earlier when he said uh, the, a lot of this stuff was done late and wasn't done in, in consultation with business. But business are the only people who will have to deliver the protocol. Uh, and we will be the people that will make it work. So talk to us. Uh, we've provided a 12-page paper now to the UK and the EU about ideas about how to, to actually make that work. The third thing is simplicity. And and the reality for us is that uh, all the systems that are in place are for shipping a full 40-foot container from of a single commodity from somewhere in the world into a large port. But what happens between Britain and Northern Ireland is if you take a supermarket, for instance, there could be 2,000 separate items on there. And it's just not practical uh, for business to be able to operate on that, on that basis. So we, we need a, a, a huge piece of work done in terms of making this uh, more simplified. And then the last piece is affordability. And the UK government has stepped in to a degree in this. It spent £355 million on... It's called the Trader Support Service, and, and there's other investments as well. But all of this is coming at a cost. And th- at this point in time, just like the rest of Ireland, we have all the costs of Brexit, but we have the additional costs associated with the protocol. Uh, so we, we need to make sure that both businesses and households have, a, have an outcome here which is affordable uh, and an outcome uh, that ensures that our prosperity can be guaranteed. So for us, it is that stability, certainty, simplicity and affordability. Uh, if we've got those things and we have ideas and we've shared them with both sides, then I think that we, we can actually grasp that opportunity that's presented to us.
0: And is there a concern, Stephen, that the Stormont executive might collapse? There's a lot of political flux, obviously, in the north at the minute. The DUP is on its, uh, what, third leader in a, in a matter of weeks now. Um, and tensions tensions there around the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol, very evident tensions.
3: Yeah, there is a concern. I mean, the, the for us... Uh, why did business get involved in this this whole process? It was back in 2017, the executive fell, and business found itself with no voice so it had no choice and it had to step into this space and now we 're here we're we're not exiting it uh, we We are being asked to deliver on the protocol so if we 're been asked to deliver then we we need to be listened to in terms of the uh, the issues that 's been created, but also the opportunity to uh, to make those issues disappear. If the executive falls, business will still be here, civic society will still be around, we'll still be engaging with the UK government and the EU. However, that's not as strong as actually our democratically elected uh, representatives actually making the case on our behalf. Uh, it, we do have, uh, it is an ugly system of government in many respects, but it's our system of government and we love it, uh, just like we would love our own children. Uh, and, and we want to make sure that, that this actually works on behalf of not just business, but every citizen in Northern Ireland. So uh, there is a warning there for the UK and the EU that they need to resolve these issues and resolve them quickly. The summer period is always very difficult in the north. Uh, it will be even more difficult, I believe, this year, given the uh, the, the, the pressure that's on our, our political class. Uh, so the EU and the UK need to respond to that. And we would hope that they would meet prior to the marching season and agree some of those requests that the UK have made in terms of the extension of uh, grace periods for prohibited and restricted items uh, and create space to allow business to work with government to show something that can actually work in practice and not just work on paper.
0: Cliff, it's the an- fifth anniversary of the Brexit vote. Uh, I don't see, I, you know, I know the British government, the Conservatives at the minute are saying uh, it's been a success and Boris Johnson uh, has outlined uh, his reasons for that, a whole pile of them and pretty Patel uh, uh, as well. Uh, what's your view uh, on Brexit five
1: years on? Yeah, It's been all cost for the UK, hasn't it, uh, Kieran? It's very hard to see what the economic advantage, where the economic advantage is for the UK. Um, well, they just signed a trade deal with Australia. Small beans, really. I mean, the key thing in trade is the the big trade is with the countries that you're close to. And Australia is a long, long way away and these big trade but well, very significant trade barriers now exist between the UK and its nearest market, the EU. Uh, and I think one of the things, you know, as Stephen referred to, is that despite the talk of the, freight, the trade deal between the uh, UK and the EU, what we are seeing now is that uh, being being in a trade deal versus being in the single market are, are two very different things. Uh, and the UK is slowly, I think, starting to wake up to the the cost of losing that frictionless uh bureaucrat you know on bureaucratic access to the to to the massive market on its uh, on it on you know on on its on its front door if you like uh and you know no no deals that are done with australia or new zealand or even the u s are gonna are gonna are gonna make up for that in any way um brexit economically was always about damage limitation and uh, the damage i think is over the long term is gonna be pretty significant
0: and the damage for the republic economically
1: yeah it's it's an interesting one. Um, There's certainly damage to uh, trade between Ireland and, and uh, the UK in the, in, in the long term, I think, or Ireland and Britain anyway, in the long term. Um, there are, you know, thousands of decisions, as Stephen was saying, you know, water flows to the easiest point, and thousands of small decisions are now being taken in in a different context than it would have been in the past. Uh, and, and, you know, some things will cost more to do. And one of the things that was interesting... Looking at the evidence of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, where businesses in the north saying, "Look, we've taken the cost so far, but a time is going to come when we're going to have to pass this on to our, you know, consumers, whether they be other businesses or whether they be people buying in the shops." You know, you have to think that you know that's going to be one of the factors here. You know, we are going to see prices going up. We are going to see less efficient trade because, you know, a barrier has gone up with our nearest and one of our biggest markets. Um, so you know, a cost to us, uh, a slower kind of longer term cost and hopefully one that we can we can get around by you know building in other markets post-pandemic in the EU and, and and further overseas you know we've shown huge the republic's economy has shown huge uh, the huge ability to do that um certainly in the multinational sector i guess where the damage of brexit shows is more in the in, in the in the domestic sector for for ireland
0: okay we'll leave it there stephen kelly of manufacturing northern ireland cliff taylor of the irish times thank you for joining us Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Stephen Kelly, and Sebastian Barnes. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.